take the word of God with me again this morning and turn again to Exodus chapter 34. We'll be looking at specifically this morning. And as you turn there, <coughs> do allow me to pray. O Lord, as we come to thy word, we do come with fear and trembling. Lord, for what thy word might demand of us, Lord, it is a word that is powerful, it is quick, and it will divide every heart that sits here this morning. And Lord, we do pray, may it enter in. Lord, may we not be rebellious against the working of thy spirit, but Lord, take us, we pray, and seal us in thy heavenly courts. May we catch a glimpse of thy glory this morning, and Lord, may our lives be changed. Lord, we seek that thy name would be honoured in this place. Lord, please, may it be so, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we come to this particular passage of Scripture, I'm sure it is one that is very familiar to many of us here this morning. And Moses has this wonderful and almighty plea unto God that in chapter 33, in verse 18, it says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. Now, as we think of the prophet Moses, of this person, this interesting character, I think we could safely say that there was no other man in the Scriptures who had so evidently seen the glory of God, that he had experienced such glory and power in an incredible way like no one else could boast of. He had seen the self-sufficiency of God when he was in the mount at Mount Horeb, tending his flock, as he had fled from Egypt, despising the riches and the wealth that was found therein. And God called him unto himself. And there was that great proclamation of our God who says, I am. That is who you are to say to the people of Israel. That is who has sent you. I am. And in that moment, Moses saw the great glory of God in his self-sufficiency. That I am God and God alone. And there's no other gods like me. I am the one who created this world, who stretched out the stars. I am the one who created your stumbling and spluttering mouth, he says to Moses. And he saw the glory of God in that burning bush that wasn't consumed. He saw the power of God. As he went to Pharaoh, as he pleaded the case on behalf of the Israelites to let them go and worship the true God in a place. And of course, Pharaoh hardening his heart against the true God. And so Moses so evidently saw the glory of God in his power, his mighty fiery sword, as it came against the greatest so-called power of that time, ancient Egypt. The ten plagues brought time and time again the blood, the flies, the pestilence, the hail, and of course the Passover. The great glory of God in his judgment. He had seen that already in this, at this point of our text. He had seen the glory of God's deliverance. As he took the nation unto the Red Sea, and there it seemed there was no way to escape. There was either drowning before them or the army of Pharaoh behind them. But yet God's glory was manifest as a mighty east wind blew those waters apart. And they stood on a heap, as it were. And they walked upon dry ground before them. The glory of God. He'd seen the glory of God in his provision. 
as the people murmured against God and they said, surely he has brought us out here to slay us, that we might die of thirst and hunger. And in God's goodness, in his glory, provided them sweet water where it was once bitter. He provided them manna that they might be filled. And of course, Moses knew all too well the glory of God in his holiness. As the tables were written upon, his commandments of God, as the tabernacle was instituted, those great pictures of Christ, the linen, the wood, the gold, the pictures of the blue, the purple, and the scarlet, all speaking about Christ and God in his work of redemption, the skins that were used, the sacrifice of Christ. Moses was a man who was most acquainted with God's glory. And yet here is his cry right now. He has an insatiable appetite. He has seen the glory of God and yet he wants more. He wants to see it ever more. And this is to be our cry today. Lord, show us your glory. No matter how much of it we may have seen already, there's more to be bestowed. There's more to be seen. There's more to be apprehended at the hand of God. The shorter catechism, the very first question is this. What is the chief end of man? And of course, many of us will know that it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The pursuit of God's glory is to be the very thing that drives us in our Christian lives this morning or in anyone's life. That is why you have been made. That is why God has created you, to bring glory to His name. And that is to be our pursuit. Whatever we do in life, it's to be for His glory. And anything else is a sin. Anything else separates us from Him. Anything else makes us deserve eternal punishment. And so this is to be the very foundation of our Christian walk, of our lives. And so why was Moses so keen to once again see the glory of God? Was it not enough? Well, when we look at the context of this passage, we find that, yes, God has done marvels so that they could come out and be separate unto God. And as Moses went up into the mount and he stayed there for days and days, and the people began to fear. And they said unto Aaron, he's surely been slain. We need to make ourselves a God and we might, that we might worship him. And so, of course, they broke off the gold from their earrings. And Aaron made a molten calf. All the while, God was giving the people his law. They were breaking it in broad daylight. And we know the account as Moses comes down with these tables. He is so infuriated. He is so indignant at what the people has done, have done that he casts these tables of stone and smashes them. And with it, can you imagine the heart of Moses at this time? Lord, you have manifested your glory. You have shown these people who thou art, and yet they are a stiff-necked people. How can I surely lead these people to a land flowing with milk and honey? I cannot do this. They are so rebellious. They do not seem to care. And yet you want me to be the leader of them? To lead them in a place that thou would have prepared for them? I can't do it. Surely this was the heart of Moses. And his cry was, Lord, if thou would just show me thy glory. Remind me who thou art once again. Show me of thy power and of thy goodness and thy mercy towards us. And then maybe we will go forward together. Go with us, Lord, he says. My friends, don't we feel the same way? We look about us 
and it seems as if we are in the valley of dry bones like Ezekiel. There are empty chapels everywhere, empty seats within the house of God. The people run after their sin, and yet they boast in it. They are pleased at their rebellion against God. And we feel like that this is a time where we are in the midst of a stiff-necked people. And our hearts fail within us. How can we go on? Well, we are to see the glory of God. And may the Lord help us to see his glory. And thus, at this, this great plea of Moses, God is pleased to show him. And there in verse 19, it says, And I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said there in 20, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God was pleased to answer this great plea of Moses. And he says, There is a place that I will hide thee, that you may see my glory, but not be slain by it. And I will proclaim my mercy and grace to you. He will show us and he will tell us of his glory. And as we look down there into chapter 34, we see God fulfilling that promise. And in verse 6 it says this of chapter 34. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. He proclaims his glory. If we were to think about what would be most glorious to God? What would we think would be the first thing that would come out of God's mouth if he was to proclaim his glory about us this morning? We might think the Lord God, powerful. That brings him glory. We might think mighty. We might think wealthy, omnipotent, righteous, holy. And yes, these are all true. But the wonderful thing, that the crowning attribute of God as he, as he proclaims his glory, is mercy. And it's a wonderful thought. And an incredible proclamation of God this morning. There in verse 6. And he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. And this is how God is most glorified. Is in his mercy to us. How do we see God's glory this morning? We see ever more of his mercy and goodness to us. You see, that is why it's so important that we hear the gospel message time and time again. I hear it. People say, I don't need to hear the gospel. I'm a Christian. I've already believed. But the more we know of his mercy towards us, the more we are able to glorify him in our lives, the more we know of his character. The scriptures represent God as merciful. It is said that this is God's love letter to mankind. Yes, there are times of, of judgment. There are times of warning that are to come. My friends, there's mercy in that. Sometimes there's a great clap of the hands and God says, pay attention. But I want to be merciful unto you. But if you run after your lust and sin, then judgment will come. It is God's love letter to mankind. It is his prized attribute, his mercy. Yes, God brings judgment but the Bible describes it as something that he is not so used to as bestowing mercy. It is like his left hand. He, he will withhold his, his vengeance and his righteousness so that mercy can be pushed forward and seen. But yet God, God will let them up 
to their reprobate minds at some point. It is his prized attribute. And it transcends all of his other attributes. His holiness, his righteousness, his power and his glory. God himself, the dwelling place where he met with Moses, it was called the mercy seat. It was the origin of mercy. If you were to talk to a fireman, they could say that the, the, the seat of the fire was, say, in this corner, in a waste paper basket. And what that means is this is where the fire originated from. And then it swept across the building and consumed the whole building. And the mercy seat of God is the very origin. It is the source of mercy in this universe. And it sweeps across this world and into our hearts. The seat, the mercy seat is the dwelling place of God. And he wants us to know of his mercy. And so God, in effect, is saying to Moses, if you want to know me, you must know of his mercy. And it's the same for us. The more we know of his mercy, the more we know God. And the more equipped we are to glorify him in our lives. First of all, of course, in salvation. There is no, we cannot bring glory to God if we do not have his salvation. If we know of his mercy that way. He will glorify himself in your judgment. But we cannot bring glory to God ourselves in that way. For worship, for discipleship, assurance, leadership, in the midst of trials and tribulation, we must know of his mercy. That we might glorify him in the, in the midst of these things. And then it enables all the beneficial workings of God. And this is a wonderful thing. We know that God is almighty, that he is righteous, holy, and powerful. And he is sovereign. And if we remove mercy from these attributes of God, that is a fearful thing. An incredibly fearful thing. That he has complete control and sovereignty over our lives. That he is holy and righteous. And that we would approach him with absolute fear and trembling. But through the doorway of mercy, those attributes become beautiful in our sight. We become those who are children of God, who have a father who is powerful, a father who is righteous and holy and perfect. And those attributes, they, they, they are given to us in a beneficial manner because of this one mercy. And so may we see how mercy is that wonderful attribute of God to us. And this, this, this mercy of him, it harmonizes all of his attributes. You see, God is able to hate sin, to detest iniquity, but yet somehow love the sinner, to somehow pardon that iniquity and love the one who committed those things. Because of his mercy, he can execute judgment, yet pardon us. Be wholly righteous, yet not behold iniquity. But if we despise the mercy of God, if we reject that attribute of him, then all we shall receive is his righteousness, is his holiness, and his wrath. And so if we know of his mercy, then there are beneficial workings of God's attributes towards us. And it's all through mercy. I'm reminded of, of the, the parable in Luke chapter 18. And it speaks of the two men that went up to pray, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. And there is a Pharisee who stands to pray and he offers up thanks unto God because he's not like other men. And he believes that 
he would receive all the goodness and promise of God because of who he was. And yet there was a publican. There was one who knew that he was a sinner. And what was his plea? He said, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And so this, this publican, he knew that all the benefits of God were on the far side of mercy. And so mercy is what he pleaded. And mercy is what he received. And he went home justified, it tells us, doesn't it? And so we know that we are only to be found, we are only to find those benefits of God through his mercy. And so we find back in our text story there in, in Exodus 34. And as the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. So how is this mercy bestowed upon us? How is it dispensed unto people? It is through grace. Grace and mercy are those wings of peace that descend upon us. For without grace, we can have no assurance in his mercy. So why does God bestow mercy? Because it's his pleasure. It is his good pleasure to see those lost in their sin, see those lost in their transgresses, and that he might pluck them out of that mire and establish their ways and bestow mercy upon them. It is his good pleasure. And Moses knew of this. Moses was once a man who'd fled from Egypt because he was a murderer. And other men sought his life. And there was nothing within him that would make him right before God, to make him deserving of this mercy. And yet God bestowed this grace upon him of mercy. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Abraham, as he was living among the, e the heathens in Ur of the Chaldees, Jacob, as he had fled from his brother Esau because he had stole the inheritance. God met him there and bestowed mercy through grace. And of course, that wonderful account of the Apostle Paul on his way to, to destroy the bride of Christ. Yet God met him where he was and bestowed mercy upon him through his grace because he delights in it. He delights in it. It brings the fullness of the ministry of the Godhead. When one is saved, when one through grace has received mercy, we see the electing love of God the Father in His eternal plan of salvation that is bestowed upon a people. We see the fulfillment of that love through the manifestation of Christ in His earthly ministry here, in His complete obedience, bringing about that work that God has ordained from before the foundation of the world. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit entering into hearts, changing hearts, removing that heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, conforming us to the image of Christ. And of course, doing that work of sanctification and one day glorification. It brings God most glory. It is his pleasure to bestow mercy in that way. And when it is applied by grace, there is no merit for us, but he receives all of that glory. Back in our text, it says this, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering. His mercy is long-suffering. There are many people who speak against God in this world. They look about and they see the wickedness. They see the pain which has come about by sin. They say that either God is indifferent, He doesn't care, or he's evil. But we must know that his mercy is one that withholds. That those people who express those opinions at that very moment are receiving the mercy of God. 
because they've received that breath. That every time, every minute that we have a beating heart, that we have breath in our lungs, God's mercy is being washed over us because he is withholding what we truly deserve. Many people proclaim that God is unfair. But if, if we truly had God who acted in a fair way, then we would all be consumed as soon as we took our first breath through that wickedness and sin of Adam that runs through our veins. God is a merciful God because he withholds. And at that very moment we had seen in the chapter before, the mercy of God withholding his wrath from the people. He could have come amongst them and consumed them for that great sin and wickedness of idolatry. Yet God, even in that very moment, was showing his withholding mercy. We know of that lamentation that many of us have used to encourage other people. In chapter 3 of Lamentations, we find the cry of Jeremiah. In verse 22, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because, of his, because his compassions, they fail not. Now, this comes in the midst of a great trial and difficulty for the nation of Israel. This has come at a time when the Babylonians have come to Israel. Time and time again, the prophets had warned, if you continue in this sin, then judgment is coming. And of course, King Nebuchadnezzar came against the city. For 18 months, he besieged the city of Jerusalem, starving the people out. And the king, Zedekiah, within, he tried to make a break out of the city. And he was overcome, and he was captured. His sons were killed before his eyes, his, and his eyes were put out. They blinded him. And the Babylonians entered into the city. They destroyed it, desecrated the temple of God. They burnt it to the ground. The walls were broken. And here, as Jeremiah, as he looks about, he sees such pain and anguish. And at the beginning of that very chapter, that whole chapter is about the rod of God. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. I cannot bear what God has done in my life. But yet there is a switch in the focus of Jeremiah here. And in verse 22, he realizes that even in the depths of this dark time of his life, there is God's mercy. For we should have all been consumed, he says. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Therefore will I hope in him, he says there in the verse after. And we must have this attitude of understanding the mercy of God in not giving us what we fully deserve. And it is in our pride in which makes us think that we deserve more than this. We deserve anything. No, God surely is merciful to us in his withholding. And we often forget it is through the long-suffering of God that we ourselves have been saved. That we ourselves have come to a time of, of hearing the gospel, of hearkening unto the gospel call, our hearts being warned, and us entering into the fold of God through his salvation, through his gospel, because of his long-suffering that he tarried, that Christ tarried in heaven. And yes, we plead, Lord Jesus, come, so oftentimes. Come in thy glory with thy host of angels and sort this world out. But let us not despise the grace, the mercy of long-suffering. Because as Christ tarries, as he holds back, there are more sheep being called into the fold. There are more hearing the gospel. There are more souls being saved. 
And the gospel continues to go out and to be proclaimed. The wonderful example of this that I often think about is that thief upon the cross next to Christ. And he was a man we don't know much about. But what we do know about him is that he deserved death in the eyes of people. That he lived not a righteous life. That it was seen fit that this man who was next to our Lord Jesus Christ would die the most cruel death imaginable by mankind. And the scriptures also tell us that even as he was hanging on that cross, that he reviled against Christ. He spoke against him. As he hung there and as his lungs could barely breathe through the pressure of being hanged by your wrists, he used those words to mock Christ as he hung there. But yet at the very dying breaths of his life, the very evening of his life, he found salvation for a great recognition for who he was next to him. And in those moments he was declared righteous before the throne of heaven. And Christ in these wonderful words say unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The long-suffering of God, that he will behold a lifetime of sin, but in a moment of faith we can be saved and declared righteous in heaven. An incredible thought. May we understand his long-suffering mercy towards us. If there is breath within us this morning, we are receiving a measure of God's mercy. My friends, if you have lived a whole life of rejecting this message, do not despise the long-suffering of God. That at a moment of faith, we can be saved. So we know that God, in His mercy, it is dispensed by grace and it is long-suffering. It is abundant in goodness and truth there in verse 6. We know that this mercy of God, it is not about just not giving us what we deserve, but He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us every blessing. It is abundant. We know the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He understood that the mercy of God was a constant supply, that there was not a place that he could run from where God was not anointing his head, where God was not overflowing his cup with blessing, that he was like that tree planted by the, the running rivers of water, a constant supply of God's goodness, according to the truth that he had revealed to him in his word. And we see it in this world now and in the world to come. All the days of my life, he says, as long as there's breath in my life, in my lungs, I know that I will receive the mercy of God. But when I enter into eternity also, that I will enjoy God forever, that I will enjoy that inheritance that I share with Christ, receiving that crown of righteousness, His mercy endures forever into eternity where we will enjoy eternity with Him, beholding that glory. I finally want to look at the cost of mercy. The cost of mercy. To show mercy to anyone, we know this, is costly to us. It costs us something. If we're showing mercy to something, then they have done something to offend us, or they have taken something from us. And if we are to dismiss these things and show them loving kindness and mercy, then it's at our own detriment. 
And so as we look at verse 7, we see the cost of mercy. It says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Now we read here the character of God as he's proclaiming his glory. It seems to us like a juxtaposition. He says, I will forgive iniquity. I will pardon thousands, but I will not let that sin go. And I will not judge that sin. So if we are the recipients of mercy this morning, we know that our sin and the judgment of that sin must have been paid for somehow. And of course, that's where we find the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is not some uh, juxtaposition. This is not something that contradicts the other. But this is the fullness of the glory of God found through the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that God could possibly uphold his promise? And of course, we find Christ. There is no free pardon from this sin, for we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And thus Christ shed his blood for us. And this is the the pattern of God manifesting his glory through his mercy, the upholding of his righteousness and the bestowing of his mercy. And we see it through the scriptures. Isaac, as his father offered him up to God, was about to offer him. He was given pardon. Why? Because there was a ram caught in the thicket. And that ram was slain, justice and mercy. When we find the Passover, as we alluded to, that the angel of death passed over those houses where there was a blood covering, a slaying of the lamb. On the day of atonement, there were two goats brought before the altar, and one was slain, but yet one where the sins of Israel were confessed over, it was let go scapegoat and it was taken by the hand of a fit man into a wilderness where no one else would find it a great picture of our sins being removed as far as the the east is from the west and we see that picture of righteousness and mercy and so when we are the recipients of mercy we know that it has come at a cost and of course we know of Barabbas the man who was sentenced to death and he received pardon why? Because the perfect spotless Lamb of God was slain for him. And so we find every time that mercy is shown, divine justice and goodness and righteousness have been upheld. And we start to understand more of God's character through it. Isaiah 53, I'm sure many of us, of course, refer to these as we think of Christ. And there is a verse at the end of this picture of Christ in the Old Testament that I had often wrestled with for a while. And in verse 7 on chapter 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. The transgression of my people he was stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. And yet it says here in the verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to take and behold his son and crush him. The one who was perfect, the one who was part of the Godhead, the eternal partner in that Godhead. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? 
It says there in verse 10, as we look on, Yet put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. And so through the crushing of his own son, Jesus Christ, God was pleased because then it allowed him to bestow mercy upon his seed. So if we are the recipients of mercy this morning, it was with such grace and love towards us that it pleased him to crush his own son, Jesus Christ. And that is something that we will spend eternity getting our heads around. Such grace and such mercy. And God is glorified twofold. Because yes, his justice is upheld by the smiting of his son, by the, by the judgment of our sin upon his head. And yet he is glorified again for redeeming his people, for making us spotless as his bride and bestowing mercy upon us. And we see how God takes something from the depths of wickedness and he is glorified twofold through it. An amazing work of redemption. That crowning jewel that we were to be in creation, we were to be that pinnacle of his creation where we fell. We fell short of the glory of God, but he regained that glory for us as we are restored through his gospel. And so God declares himself as the just and the justifier keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty. There is truly a desire in our hearts that we might behold the glory of God. Is that our cry of Moses this morning? Do we look about us and do we see and do we think how are we to continue? How can we go forth? Well, let us see his glory through his mercy. And I plead with you this morning, if you have despised the mercy of God, he is still long-suffering. You have heard the gospel again. You have life and breath within you. And glorify God with your lives as you were created to do, that you might feel that, know that fulfillment, that you might truly know God and his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to thy word, we do often feel so unable to put forth the wonderful truths of thy word what thou hast truly done Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ and we do thank thee that thou art a God who is merciful and Lord that we pray that it might be pleasing to thee that thou would bestow mercy upon one here this morning Lord who has rejected thee perhaps for their, their whole lives Lord we pray that they would see the full glory of God that is bestowed through the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ Lord, those of us who know and love thee, may we know evermore what thou hast done in our lives, that we might bring thee glory, that we might truly live for thee, and lay our own lives down, that thou might be glorified through them, we pray. Do be with us now as we continue on. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us take our hymn books again this morning and turn with me to 479. O for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. 479.
unto him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, 